Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to the Postcards from a Dying World podcast. I'm David Agronoff, your host, and with me today is author Rio Ewers. But before we get to that, I just want to announce really quickly because I know on Facebook and Twitter, I put it out there that episode 40 was going to be a season finale and I was going to have, I'm still going to do this episode, but it's going to be episode 50 now because I have some plans between now and then. And that's going to be a, a career retrospective for my writing, with, uh, co-hosted by Desmond Reddick of the Dread Media Podcast. He's turning the tables on me. And that's going to be the season one finale for Postcards. I'm going to take a little break after that. And then we'll come back with all kinds of new interviews and stuff and panels. I'm going to be doing more panels, including coming up soon. We have a tribute to Richard Matheson with his longtime editor, the largest collector of Richard Matheson books and David J. Scow, just uh, talking about Richard Matheson. So I'm really looking forward to that episode because Greg Cox, his longtime editor and I have been um, threatening to do a Richard Matheson panel forever and we're finally gonna do it. So, um, but today we're talking to Rio Ewers and Rio is the author of uh, several, well, he's um, in rare territory because I've read all of his novels, I think. I, there's some novellas and stuff that I don't think I've read. And so far, he is, um, has a perfect record with me. Westlake Soul was his debut. And then The Forgotten Girl, Halcyon, am I pronouncing that correctly? Hal- yep, Halcyon. yep. That's and right. uh, the brand new... Lola on Fire, which um, is going to be the main thing that we're going to be talking about because I just finished reading that this week. I slammed through it in three days. It was a page turner. It was really great. Rio, thank you for joining Postcards from a Dying World. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. You're a very, I can tell you're a natural storyteller. You're a great writer. Like from the very beginning, even, uh, you know, Westlake Soul as a debut was a great debut. How did you get into storytelling and reading and genre fiction? Like, what's your origin story? Well, you know, um, it's probably quite familiar. You know, I I started writing stories for pleasure at a very young age, pretty much as soon as I could form sentences. I think that's that's quite a common reply from a lot of authors, from a lot of writers. Um, And, uh, you know, now that I think back on it, you know, my, my longing to tell stories and my, my passion for escaping into other worlds, you know, may have come from, you know, having not perhaps the, the greatest home life growing up, you know, broken families and abusive fathers and all of that kind of thing. Um, and writing was one of the few things that gave me pleasure in my very early life. And it was the same with reading. You know, I always loved reading. I mean, very, very early on, I was, you know, they weren't really even books at all. They were, uh, you know, a lot of kiddie books, short story, you know, uh, Enid Blyton, like abridged versions of Treasure Island and that sort of thing. And when I was sort of 10, 11, I branched into um, the pan books of horror, 
uh, which were which were sort of my gateway into the into genre fiction. I I'd been watching movies. My my parents used to go out at weekends and kind of leave me and my my sister alone in the house. We were very young, and I used to use that time to watch the um, the Hammer Horror Double Bill, which was on BBC uh, every Saturday night or Friday night, whatever night it was, and, and that was also a gateway into into all things. You know, they showed the uh, a lot of the Hammer horror movies and some of the old universe classics as well. Mm -hmm. Now and, I'm not uh, an expert in the Canadian accent, but I can tell. I don't believe your accent is Canadian. So did you grow up? Where did you grow up exactly? Yeah, I grew up in the UK. Yeah. Um, and my accent's just a little bit colored with, with Canadian, but it's not it's not a Canadian accent at, at all. Right. Um, everybody over here can hear the English in, in my accent. Whereas when I go back to England, people people say, hey, you've you got a Canadian accent. I'm like, nah, I really don't. But so, yeah, I've been here for uh, 20 years now. And, um, you know, there's a little bit of Canadian color into my accent, but I grew up in, in the UK. Yeah, right. which was, you know, where I wrote my first stories and sent off my first stories. You know, I was probably 16 when I started writing with a, you know, with publication in mind, when I decided that writing books was a pretty good way to make money. Um, and what were the I was wrong. <laughs> Now, I know you said that the pan horror books were a big part of it, but what were the authors that really first struck your imagination? And like, you know, who are, who are the ones that, that you feel were the most formative for you in that early writing phase? James Herbert was definitely a writer I, I, I turned to early. Um, he was, uh, you know, his, his books like The Rats and Lair and The Fog were just so easy to, to get lost in. Um, and, and they, they followed the same formula, a lot of those books. They weren't necessarily fantastically well, well written, but they were always dependable. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for a sort of, you know, a sort of teenage kid with, with, you know, an expansive imagination and a mind that wanted to go everywhere, they, they ticked all the boxes. Um, Clive Barker as well. When I was a little bit older, he was, um, that was that was like opening a completely different doorway um and one that led to some very strange places um and obviously stephen king you know there's i don't think there's a horror writer alive who wasn't um influenced by stephen king in in some way you know, he's a fantastic storyteller uh, national boy treasure yeah and james herbert i'll, I'll say um I still think Domain, the one with the uh, where the people that hide in the subways and uh, from the nuclear war and they have the giant super rats, has got to be one of the greatest concepts for a novel. I'm not so sure about the execution, but my God, that yeah. concept I still think is the bleakest concept of all time. Yeah, uh, I am a James Herbert fan. Um, uh, rats is incredible, and and um, we did read them over here. I know James Herbert is more important in England. So yeah. To genre readers over there than he was to us, but we were reading him. But that's great. Yeah. Um, and I detected more of the Clive Barker influence in Westlake Soul probably than 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 any of your other stuff. But it's subtle. I definitely um, cut on to that as far as your influences go, at least as far as I could tell. But it would seem that as an adult, you have. Um, you probably have very different uh, influences. I know I do between when I read then. I still like a lot of those authors that I would, but who would you say are some of your major influences now? 
as, as a reader and writer? Yeah, you know, as I, as I got older, I started to revisit, you know, the classics, um, J.D. Salinger and uh, Graham Greene, George Orwell. I think if I, you know, consider my favorite books now, you know, I would look at Lord of the Flies and I would look at, you know, 1984 and Brighton Rock, um, Cormac McCarthy as well. Uh, just, my God, the guy just lights me up every time I read one of his books. Absolutely fantastic. Um, and you know, I, like it's, I'm, I'm inspired also by um, not necessarily the most famous authors, but um, you know, if I get sent a book that um, maybe by a sort of more unknown author and, and they've just, you know, followed their dream and they've put in good work and it may not be the best book I've ever read, but that always, you know, I, I mean, I find it encouraging that there's still so much talent out there coming through mm -hmm. and and I find that in, inspiring too and you know on top of that you know some of my good friends you know guys like Tim Leban and Chris Golden um Mark Morris uh fantastic writers you know and I always I love their books and and reading them and uh, knowing them as people as well, uh, you know, I find that a that's a that's a huge inspiration for me to to keep going with my own work. Yeah, it's been really cool lately that we've had uh, such an uh, explosion of people coming from the genre, like having real mainstream success in the last couple of years. Twenty twenty was a uh, was a a banner year for for uh, horror fiction, and a lot of uh, people that are familiar to those of us who've gone to conventions and been a part of the scene. Mm -hmm. You know, 2020 was a great year for that. Hopefully with Lola on Fire 2021's looking up pretty good too. But we'll get to Lola on Fire eventually. But yeah, yeah. Your, your debut novel, Westlake Soul, to me, for me, when I first read this one, I, I knew your name. I'd, I'd seen maybe short stories somewhere or something, but I knew your name and I saw Westlake Soul on the, the new bookshelf at the library when I was living in Portland grabbed it just because I was like, hey, that name looks familiar and uh, knew zero about the book. And that has been my trajectory with real yours books because you sold me with Westlake Soul that you were so, that you were talented. And I went into that one with zero. So I have never read a dust jacket or a description or a plot for any of your books before I've Good. gone into them. I like that. I love it that way. If I had my way, I wouldn't I wouldn't have them on the book at all. I would be everybody going cold. Well, here's, here's, it, a trick. It, uh, here's a trick I learned, and I'm going to give this to all the listeners and to you too, is that my new trick is to try and do that, which doesn't always work, is that whenever I find a book that I want to read, I either put a, a for later on it at the on the library app, or I put it on the shelf on my to-be-read shelf, and I give myself six months so I try to forget why I wanted to read that book. Right. But I trust myself <laughs> that yeah. something about it, you know, made me want to read it. And that's a way that I found to do that. However, anyways, I went into Westlake Soul knowing nothing, uh, assuming that it was horror, but not really knowing too much about it. And the way I describe Westlake Soul is that um, it's kind of like a modern like a bizarro Johnny got his gun, <laughs> right? Because the main character 
And I don't know if Johnny Got His Gun was an influence, which is the novel that is most famous for inspiring the Metallica song one. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it was a great movie too. And, and a, a truly fantastic anti-war novel by Dalton Trumbo. And, um, but Westlake Soul is about a surfer who's in an accident. If my memory serves, it's been a long time since I read it, since the year it came out. He's in a coma and it's basically the journey that the mental journey that he takes. Um, mm-hmm. Where did this novel come from and what were you trying to setting out to achieve with that one? Oh, you know, I'm afraid that I might have to be like vague, a little bit vague on the answer because, you know, this is a, this is a, this is a weird novel. It, it really feels like it sort of came from, from the ether, you know, I, it, mm-hmm. everything about this book felt like it was just meant, meant to happen. Even the way I, I got the idea, I, you know, it was, you know, that sort of half awake, half dream state that you're in the moment, you know, really sort of in a few minutes before you wake up where you're aware of sounds going on around you. And it, the idea came to me then, like I heard waves and, and I heard, you know, people shouting and, you know, save him, save him. And it was just, and I, and I woke up and I had his name in my head, I had almost the entire story formed in my head and that never happens and I got out of bed and I turned on my computer and I wrote this one page synopsis for what would and the top you know I still got it actually I still got that that uh, the synopsis that I wrote and at the very top it says who is Westlake I didn't have a surname at the time but I had his first name and it was just an observation of what happens to him after he you know he, you know he goes into this permanent vegetative state and you know, I guess the um, the hook for that book and what really drew me in, and, and I honestly, when I had the idea, I felt I'm never going to be skilled enough to write this book. I don't have the tools in my toolbox yet to, to make this work, but it kept, it kept pushing at me and pushing at me. And I, you know, it was the hook of, you know, we were, you know, there's the, the concept that you know, our, our minds are like an iceberg and we basically only use 10% of it and 90% of the iceberg is unexplored territory. And, you know, for Westlake Soul, he effectively flips the iceberg. So uh, he doesn't have access to that 10%. So he can't walk or talk, you know, he can't, he can't communicate in any real way, um, but he does have access to the 90% that none of us do. And that gives him these superpowers. So he becomes, in a way, while he's in this vegetative state, he becomes a hero of sorts who can astral project and who can, you know, communicate with his dog and he can he can uh, read his parents' mind to a certain extent. And, and yeah, it's it's a, a crazy quantum metaphysical journey. And and in the end, I thought I'm just going to try. I'm just going to sit down and write it. And you know, it just happened. Like it just came out of me. This book just poured out of me. And obviously there was a lot of research, um, but I never found it difficult. I never found it hard. Um, And I wanted to get the research. I wanted to get the book read by somebody who knew about, you know, people who who were in permanent vegetative states. And it was just a a crazy thing happened where I ended up actually reading I was at a reading and reading alongside this this guy and I'd read a little bit from Westlake so and he says hey uh, I'm a nurse and I look after people in permanent vegetative states and I'm like you're, you're kidding me you know what well, I was looking for yeah and I was just 
he said, I'd love to read it. Yeah, everything happened. Everything was just perfect. And then it, it fell into place. And it was one of those books that I look back on now and I kind of feel like I didn't even write it at all. You know, there was just some weird force of nature that was flowing through me at that time. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I can't give you a very clever answer, I'm afraid, about, you know, where the ideas came from and how hard it was to write because it, 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 I'm sure it was hard to write, but I don't really have any, any memory of it. It kind of feels, it feels a little bit like I don't know if you've been out like on a crazy weekend bender and you sort of come back and, you know, three or four years later, you're trying to remember what, you know, all the crazy things you did. And, you know, it feels a bit like that. Like I went on this bender that lasted about six months. <laughs> like kind of like King writing Cujo, uh, except for that was alcohol, but he had yeah. memory of it, right? And, well, I'm sure there was alcohol at some point, but mostly it was, it was just this weird, just, you know, a, a massive flow of inspiration, and uh, uh, yeah, it's a very, it's a very bizarre book to me even now. I'm very, I'm very proud of it, but I don't know if I have any right to be. <laughs> no, you do because it's an incredible book, and and um, it made me basically when Forgotten Girl came out, which is my uh, awesome segue. When Forgotten Girl came out, I immediately was going to read it because of the strength of Westlake Soul, but. There, there was, there was a period, but there was a, several years between there. Um, well, I want to get to that too. But with Westlake Soul as the debut, like I have a feeling that there was a couple trunk novels and things like that before that one. When you said like you weren't sure that you had the ability to write a novel like that yet, I have one that I've been holding on to for twenty years, mm -hmm. and I keep looking at the research books on the shelf and go, well, not yet. <laughs> and there's. Yeah. There's the fear that you could do that to yourself, right? And yeah. then jumping in and just saying you're going to do it. And there are other novels that I've written and subsequently published that I, there was one that I spent 15 years putting off and wrote. Sometimes you do just have to take that plunge. And, and I, I think once you decided to do that with Westlake Soul, it was just like a trajectory to, to the point where those of us who found the book got to have that experience. So good on you for going, for jumping ahead and doing it. Thanks, man. Yeah. And you, so there were trunk novels up right before that or, or attempts? Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. Um, you know, who doesn't have trunk novels? There's, there, there's trunk novels and then I've got trunk novels of trunk novels. And then they go back. Right. I've got, there's probably four or five books that have never seen the light of day and never will that were just kind of me 17, 18 years old, you know, trying on a novelist's hat and, and you know, it looking ridiculous on me and then trying another one, um, finally getting better. Um, Westlake was my, probably my first book that was, I do consider it a debut, but I had published a couple of books before then. One was with an incredibly small press in the States and I can't, for the life of me, I remember the name of, I can't remember, but the book yeah. was called uh, Ever Dead. And, um, right. I saw that title when I was looking around and I was like, I don't remember. Yeah. It's been pulled for a long time. It's, it's not actually, the, it's been republished, I think later this year in Germany, which is crazy. And I finally got paid for it, which is good um, <laughs> because I never got paid from the micro press. Um, but it was, and I wrote this years ago, Ever Dead, I wrote probably 23 24 years ago 
<laughs> crazy. You probably learned a lot writing oh, the process. So it's you know it's actually not not bad, and I did polish it up a little bit, and it was my attempt at writing a commercial vampire novel. You know, this was me being inspired by all those great Hammer horror movies I watched as a kid when my parents left. and uh and i'm wanting to just say i'm gonna do this and it's gonna have all the cliches it's gonna have all the classic vampire trip i'm just going and and i did and i wrote it and i had a great time with it and um that was published by this this small press yeah but i don't even you can't find it anywhere now thank god but like i said i did polish it up and i sent it recently to this publisher in germany and it's 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 still pretty good um uh, and then the other book I wrote, which was not long after that, was called End Times. And that was a very dark, I, I wouldn't call it bizarro fiction, but it was it was very, very dark and about a, a former drug addict who falls in love with a woman who's basically a, an embodiment of his of his um, his habit. And, uh, you know, he's he's led down this, this pathway that leads to his past and he ends up on this native reserve in, in the United States. I wrote this back in, back in England. And, um, uh, it's something that if I'd written it today, I would never publish it, but, you know, sort of 25, 20, 20 or 25 years ago, whenever it was that I wrote it, it felt to me like the absolute best novel in the world, you know? Um, and it's not bad. It's pretty good, but there are some, you know, definitely some subject. I'm not sure I'd write a book now and, and set it on a native reserve, you know, not being you know, a person who knows too much about that, that lifestyle, you know, 25 years ago was a different time and I was a different writer. And, you know, nowadays I wouldn't assume to, to sort of do anything like that, but it's, you know, it's still a pretty good book. When I lived in Portland, Jeremy Robert Johnson and I used to always joke that her writers like, um, like us and like you who were started very, very, very young. We thought it, if we could manage to find everyone's like most embarrassing story they wrote as a teenager and do an anthology of those. Yeah. Like how amazing. That's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how many writers have them, but oh God. Uh, I've got plenty. I have ours. So we've, we've joked about it. Um, I have one called Night in the Life of a Common Werewolf that mm-hmm. um, is. Um, like an early one. Do you remember any of your early teenage, um, like ridiculous attempts at writing? They were all ridiculous attempts <laughs> at, at writing. The best you could say about any of them is that I was, I was determined. I never gave up and they did show a certain amount of promise, but that's being very kind. Um, yeah, God, I wrote some, I just, they were all stinkers really, they, you know, and they were me trying to be Clive Barker or me trying to be Stephen King or me trying to be James Herbert, you know, I was definitely, whatever novelist I was digging at the time, I was essentially replicating them to the best of my ability, which I had none, you know, so you can imagine how that turned out. But yeah, yeah, if you ever, I, I could publish my own collection of very terrible stories, believe me. And fortunately, they're all in a trunk now and then and literally in a trunk and they are never coming out. They're, they're in my mum's attic and well, well, part of the concept was zero editing. Absolutely yeah. zero. Typos, everything, yeah. Everything, just the, just absolutely, it would be hilarious. That's All right. great. No, I love that idea. So I ruined my perfect segue to Forgotten Girl, but um, so but let's talk about that book right yeah. now. 
Of all your books, it's the one that personally connected with me. And part of it is, is that I felt like it was a modern kind of homage to a series or a type of book from the 80s that I loved, which is kind of the um, psychic horror road trip. Basically, it reminded me of the John, John Ferris's The Fury and Stephen King's Firestarter, but written in a way, so here's the thing. It reminds me of those books. I think with a, written with a type of skill that um, neither of the, those authors who are great authors, incredible authors, right? But I don't think Firestarter is King's best or close to his best. I don't know how much cocaine he was on when he, <laughs> when he wrote it, but, um, but The Forgotten Girl feels like it's in that kind of 80s psychic thriller kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, what what really brought it to the to the fore for me was just this idea that you're writing a romance about for a character who's in love with a woman that he doesn't remember, and that's such an interesting kernel. Was that the original idea that started uh, Forgotten Girl, or did that did you happen on that by accident? I think it was pretty much you know. Yeah, the original idea, as, as I remember, was this, this poor guy getting the crap beaten out of him by, by these heavies who are, who are looking for, you know, this woman that he has absolutely no memory of. And, and I started asking questions about, you know, the hows and the whys. And, and from that, the, the concept of him, you know, how can you be in, how can you love somebody that you don't even remember? And, and is that even possible? And, and if it is, you know, how, how can we make it work in a way that makes makes sense in a novel? So, you know, like like all ideas, you know, they're, they're invitations, you know, through a doorway. And, um, yeah, that was one that, you know, I opened the door with with great enthusiasm and, and ran out of Tartan as, as fast as I could. It's, it's an incredible book. And um, even with the, the villain, Dominic Lying, who... Um, I know in my review, I kind of compared him to a Luke Besson villain uh, because I think Luke Besson and Stephen King write the nastiest, meanest bad guys and villains. Those two, right. movies, uh, cause I mean, if you think of the professional or even Kiss of the Dragon for Luke Besson and like, there's a scene where the villain just twists the turtle on his back while he's talking on the phone. And I've always right. been like, who thinks of that as like, I'm gonna define my villain that way. But Dominic Lang in Forgotten Girl is a very strong villain and what it taught me, or and, and what I think is, what makes a Rio Ewers novel a Rio Ewers novel to me is two things. One, the characters are always extremely well-written and relatable, whether you're supposed to like them or not like them. So the characters are always strong, and I'm always turning the pages really fast with your book. So when we get to the writing part, we're going to talk about both those things but the characters are forgotten girl it's really interesting because like the the idea is centered around this character who's a mystery and so it was really interesting how you had to unfold that character was that are you a pantser or a planner like did you how much of unfolding that forgotten character um was planned ahead of time is what i'm wondering Sally's character you're talking about yeah yeah I am a pantser I did um this was a the concept the I was 
the origin of this book was a little unusual in that um, I'd written a novel called 1000 Trees that I, uh, you know, I still think to this day is a really good book, but I was having trouble selling it. And then an editor, the editor at St. Martin's Press, Jamie Levine, she read the book and she said, you know, this, this book is good and it shows promise, but this isn't the kind of thing that we want to sell right now, but what else is we have got? Why don't you have them pitch me a few ideas and to my agent? And, uh, and so I did, you know, I sat down and we, you know, came up with a few ideas. So the sketch of the Forgotten Girl was, was quite, you know, the original concept was quite loose. Like I said, I had this guy getting the crap beaten out of him and, you know, this, this idea that he, you know, he was chasing this girl that he loved but didn't remember. But not too much else was, was sort of thrown down in this initial pitch, but there was enough there for Jamie said, that's, there's something about this book, that's the one. And uh, so she ended up buying it. And, and I, so I, I had sold a novel that I didn't know too much about, <laughs> which was a bit scary because now I've got to write it. Uh, and certainly, you know, Sally's character, just the, I, I didn't have too much of her fleshed out in my head. Um, all I knew is that she would have to be somewhat understated in order to stay under the radar, you know, so I wanted her to kind of feel very natural, very normal, and, um, and I, she was definitely a character like Dominic Lang, who grew as the book went on. I pretty much had Harvey in my head, you know, I kind of wanted him to be, you know, not dissimilar to Westlake Soul in a way, in that he's just kind of a sort of friendly, lovable guy. You know, he could be your brother or your cousin or your best pal and um, someone that you could relate to in that way because everybody knows someone like that. And I think that's one of the reasons why Westlake was, you know, it's, it's such a, a well-received book is that, you know, everybody's got a Westlake soul in their life. And I think everybody also has a, someone like Harvey that they know, you know, just this quite lovable guy who's, uh, yeah, he was pretty much, I pretty much had him down, but the other characters needed a bit more, you know, see of the pants, hoping and praying. <laughs> and then uh, for Halcyon, this novel was marketed as a thriller. I saw it as a straight up horror novel myself. But it seemed to be a, a meditation on trauma and, and the PTSD of school shootings, terrorist attacks, that sort of thing. And somebody who's just kind of like wanting to escape all that. And I, it was a good zeitgeist moment for, for me too, because right around that time I read Weston Oaks' um, Burning the Sky, which is about soldiers dealing with PTSD. But I read right. them almost back to back. And right. so it was like, oh, it's a... A, a, a trauma double feature <laughs> yeah <laughs> and yeah. um and both books were great but am i on to the right was that what you were trying to explore with that book or or am i off on that oh well you know definitely they were they were when i was coming up with you know how i was going to make this book work i mean essentially you know the hook for that book was was um you know america at the time you know, so certainly seems to be, in, you know, heading in the right direction now. But at the time I wrote that, it seemed that, you know, the United States was, you know, for a little while there, they were, you know, heading in the wrong direction politically. And also, you know, in terms of, you know, shootings and hate crimes and uh, racist rhetoric and all of these hateful and vile things that seem to be plaguing the country for a long time. And, and, 
and I heard a lot of people say, you know, if, if Trump gets elected, I'm going to move to Canada. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, well, what if there was a place where you could, where you could go, not just escape, you know, what America might be becoming, but also escape all of these other trappings that seem to have, you know, changed us as people, you know, our, our, our dependency on, on technology and, you know, it's, and, and, and you know, everything we, we do, we're plugged into some machine or other. And wouldn't it be good just to sort of go back to the, you know, the simple things, you know, the, you know, neighbor and family and just read a good book by an open fire, you know? So that was sort of the, the motivation there. And, and it was just taken again, you know, you know, these relatable characters, these people that, you know, readers can identify with and putting them through enough pain that they would even consider that as an option. Because I, I think people say these things, you know, oh, I'd move to Canada, <laughs> always Canada. <laughs> like it's always perfect up here. Um, right. Well, but, I, I used to have a friend in Victoria who owned a bookstore there, um, Dark Horse Books in Victoria, my late great friend, um, Robert Garfadden. He and I used to argue all the time because he would say like, Canada sucks too. You can't, you know, you don't want to come here. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, it's, it, it, yeah, it's, it would say so that was, yeah. I just needed uh, to, to jolt this family enough to make it possible. And, you know, like I said, people right. say they'll do it, but they never actually, they never actually do it. Well, some people right. do. Yeah. So, but you know what, like, I think part of the reason is I'm, I, I love the United States and I've got so many great American friends and I grew up with, you know, American culture at the forefront of my mind. All my favorite sports were American sports. My favorite musicians are American musicians. My favorite music, like it's, it's such a big part of my life. And, um, and, and I, you know, in a way it was, it was kind of my, my love letter almost to, to America and the things I love about it. And, and, um, that, was never in my mind when I know I, I know but it was it was drawing attention to the things that that I see as as being you know things that can be hopefully one day healed because you know good place you know and it's uh you know everything America does well it does better than anybody and everything it does badly it does worse than anybody so it's it's this crazy typhoon of very good and very bad and you know most people are in the middle just spinning around hoping that you know things work out for them it's a it's a great it's a great place and a great country and I'm, i can't wait for covid to end so i can come down and see all my american buddies again uh well uh i'd definitely love to hang out if you make it down to san diego well i'd definitely come into san diego my good buddy chris royal is in san diego so i'll let you know when i'm in town well, so now this book, let's let's not get into spoilers yet with Lola on Fire, but sure. Um, and I managed to stay spoiler free, and so I this of all your books, I think this is the one that I benefited the most from knowing nothing. And literally, like I got mad because I saw the word the name John Wick at the top of the book before I started, and I was like, oh, I didn't even want to see that. I didn't right. see that comparison. So I literally knew nothing and just the title and I saw the name John Wick at the top. So my experience with this was that for that reason, shift of perspective from after the prologue to, um, which we'll talk more about when we get into writing, to the next hundred pages was so good. 
this to me sounds like more this novel as a concept sounds more like a pitch for a movie than it does a novel and so if you if i had known what the plot was about my thought would have been well that's that would be hard to do as a novel because it's almost like a perfect action movie right did you mm-hmm. set out to write a novel that was a perfect action movie like in your head yeah that's exactly what i set out to write that's a hundred percent yeah, and I've said this in pretty much every interview I've done. You know, I, I'm a big fan of those, you know, one-person army movies, you know, going all the way back to the Bruce Lee movies I used to watch as a kid where, you know, Bruce would go into a room and just kick everyone's ass, right? Right. It's fantastic. I love it. One, one person against a whole room full of people and that one person still left standing at the end. I just love it. I loved it in um, Kick-Ass where, you know, Hit Girl just takes out all of those guys. And I loved it in Kill Bill where Beatrix Kiddo is in the House of Fallen Leaves just with her, you know, Hattari Honzo blade and she just slaughters everyone, his limbs and shit. It's so over the top. One of my best friends in the world, we are friends because of Commando, because of our mutual love. Right. And it's... (laughs) It's I get it. I get it. Yeah. John John Rambo was was a big hit at the same time that Commander. And I'm such a big fan of that. And I know it's goofy. I know it's over the top. But I watch movies like this, like Kill Bill and John Wick with this huge grin on my face. Because there is obviously this sort of visceral rush of like, oh, man, I'd love to kick ass like that. So part of the draw of writing uh, Lola on Fire, I remember seeing an interview with Lee Child where he said, you know, creating Jack Re- Reacher was you know, it, it was great because he got to live in Reach's boots and, you know, he could, it was the, you know, that sort of feeling of being able to walk into any room and or any bar or down and not feel threatened. And I thought, yeah, that would be, that, that would be great to create that, that character. And, you know, there were, there were a few ideas sort of chiming around in my mind. Um, but yeah, so part of it was wanting to create a character like that. And another part of it was loving these movies and thinking, how can I do that and throw it in the pages of a novel? And I honestly didn't think you could do it because you get away with so much more on film than you can do in in a book. The moment, you know, you start to veer away from what's believable in a contemporary thriller novel, then, you know, the reader is going to, you know, is going to be, you know, you're going to lose the reader to think, oh, this, no, this is you not, have to know, not possible. You have to know how Lola can do this. You have to know yeah. how, because you're in their head. and you can- Exactly. And, and there's, you know, yeah. the other mechanics as well, like, you know, how many times can you write, he pulled the trigger before, you know, your reader gets so sick of hearing that threat. You know, it's like, you, you've, you've got to choose your moments, right? And I thought, you just can't be done. And then I thought, well, you know what, I really want to try it anyway. <laughs> but like with Wesley, you know, what the hell, man, I'm just going to do it. And uh, I found that it was a game by creating characters that hopefully the reader could relate to and identify with and that felt like they were, you know, truly breathing on the page. You know, you, you pull the reader in and then that gives you a little bit more license to get away with some of the more um, off-the-wall aspects of, of what Lower on Fire is. So yeah, definitely an action movie in book form. 100% my motivation. Good catch. I'm not going to talk too much about myself. I got one of those too. 
Um, and that's one of the fun, <laughs> the fun things is, uh, but I think the 80s action movie vibe, it's like, it's a very fun, like, um, it's like a slip, like something that's slipping out of your hands when you're writing as a narrative and you're trying to grab it and it keeps, and it's very fun because you're like, I want this vibe. I want to do this, but to do it in a narrative structure is very hard. And that's one of the reasons why when we get into writing uh, into the spoilers, I was very excited to talk to you. Um, as I was reading this, I was like, because I had been kind of mulling over a break for the podcast. And when I was reading this, I was like, no, nah, I got to, I got to talk yeah. to this guy about yeah. this book. That's good. Yeah, um, no. And, and the other thing as well is this was my, for everything I've written before, Lola on Fire has some paranormal or supernatural or genre based element, you know, straight horror even. Um, and this was the first, first short story, first, but first of anything I've ever written, I think, where there's no supernatural or horror element at all. It's pure thriller. You know, it's marked early, you'll find it in the thriller section. It's, you know, it's, and, and that was a challenge and it was, and, it, and, and I enjoyed every moment of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. And so now there's a special cameo in this book. It's a road trip um, story too. So uh, their characters are traveling, traveling around and they end up in uh, Bloomington, Indiana, which is my hometown. Yay. It, yeah. And so I was just reading and all of a sudden you mentioned the character of Renee, who they're trying to track down, who I believe is, is uh, aunt, uncle, or, or an aunt, I'm sorry, or, or family relation of something. Yeah, second cousin, yeah. Second cousin, that's right. And she lives in Bloomington. Now, I could quibble a little bit with the idea that somebody would live in Bloomington and work for the Indianapolis Colts because the Colts facility is on the north side of Indianapolis, and that would be an awful commute. However... <laughs> I, I was surprised when I actually, when you, okay, first of all, you mentioned the downtown library. I spent years getting books from that library. I still owe money to that library. Um, <laughs> so that was fun. But there's also a crucial, one of the most important turning points of the novel takes place in a park, Bryan Park, which is the park I grew up playing basketball and shooting hoops. And I still shoot hoops there when I go home to visit family because it's really close to where my uh, stepmother lives. And, and so like, that was really cool for me. <laughs> that was like a neat thing. Brian Park, did you, did you Google parks in Bloomington? Did you research Bloomington or did that just, how did that happen? How did Bloomington happen in this book? Yeah. I have to know. Yeah, I mean, as, as some of the locations, I mean, uh, some of the locations in the book are, are real places like Bloomington and then others. Uh, like uh, Carver City in, in Pennsylvania are fictitious. Right. And really it was a question of, you know, making their journey around, you know, the North uh, United States and, you know, the, the Midwest um, fit the timeline. So I couldn't have them venture off too far. And I knew they would have to be sort of in the vicinity of, of Indianapolis and it may have been a question of, um, I don't know why I picked Bloomington exactly, probably because they have a Greyhound bus that goes there. And, uh, and, and that, that makes it easy for the characters to get to and, and to leave there. Um, and, and I think I mentioned the bus depot as well at some point. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, and I've never been to Bloomington and you know, the good thing one of the great things, one of my great research tools is Google Maps. <laughs> right, right. And I use Not it a lot. 
I've done it. Yeah, before. and it's it's invaluable. And um, and when I you know I went to the sort of Bloomington website, it just it seemed idyllic. It seemed this perfect little place. It is. And again, wow. it was yeah. <laughs> I, I I I don't. I will go one day. I, I intend to go. I want to find my book in the library there. I'm sure it's there. Um, and uh, yeah, it just it would it fit you know the timeline and it fit the geography and um and i think i picked brian park because uh you know it had like um you know basketball hoops and i wanted to explain it a little bit and i saw pictures of the park and i thought okay there's a little running track and you know they could you know they could walk around the track and it just seemed to fit and it was uh yeah there was no i don't have a personal reason for picking bloomington or brian park it was just everything seemed to come together nicely again see that the pan you when you're seated the pants already you gotta sometimes go with what you're given and uh it worked out nicely and i think somebody else um said they were from bloomington and they'd read it and it was a real thrill for them to see their hometown mentioned so it's good and it's nice you know represent right well yes and and let me tell you uh the Bryant park basketball courts are kind of legendary they have great pickup games so oh great so um in fact just just Bryant Park being there was really neat for me because like and I kind of read that my eyes kind of was like you know the, the library I was like okay everybody knows there's a library in a town you know right and then uh but but with Bryant Park I was like whoa and then I wondered has he actually been to Bloomington or right like you know and then I remember like I've done the same thing too I've written a lot about Seattle and I have been to Seattle but right google maps and it's been my friend writing about seattle um well it's you know again and you've got to be given some sort of creative license as well and you know i know that sort of famous thing is write what you know but my god you know how constricting is that you know yeah right to escape that's what i say go different places yeah well um as a as a as a Hoosier from uh, Bloomington, I just, I, I really appreciated that. And just the Bryant Park thing, just really. Good, yeah. Well, you know, I had that little personal moment for you. So I'm, I found that. That's great. And yeah. I'm glad I represented it nicely and that you didn't, you didn't turn around and say, hey, that's not what it's like. You suck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, no, no, I was appreciated that. Um, the, the commute working for the Colts thing was the only thing that I was kind right. of. Oh, shit. Well, maybe somebody from Indiana, like. <laughs> would would have would have called bs on that that was the only but, but you know what um it's not impossible and there you go we'll take it and and listen plenty of people i there are people especially there's a lot of people that work on the south side of indy who live in bloomington because they'd much rather live in bloomington than, right and and you know and the funny thing is because people like you know that's an hour commute and it's like uh but they're they've they've um They've made more lanes of the highway, so more people do it probably now than in the past. So you're going to get away with it. It's I'm going to get away with it. I've yeah. already decided. <laughs> All right. So if you're listening to this point and you haven't read Lola on Fire, um, just know that um, it comes highly recommended from me. I think, well, Forgotten Girl might be my favorite of your books. I don't know. Lola on Fire really, uh, I read it all in three days. It's 400 pages and I read it in three sure. days. And I, was still going to work and achieving things in my life. I wasn't, so I somehow flew through this book really, really fast. It's a quick read and um, it's very propulsive. The characters are great. Now we're going to start talking about spoilers and we're going to get really nitty gritty um, nuts and bolts uh, about writing this book. 
And so one of the, the really extreme transitions in this book was you talked about like that fun kind of off the wall feel that um, 80s action movies and one man army movies have. And that this prologue to this book is dialed to 11 spinal tap style, like with all that fun stuff. But there's a big shift yeah. Um, after the prologue, because we're no longer with Lola. And so speaking to somebody who read this with going in totally cold for the hundred pages after that, it's a very different vibe because it's becomes a character story about Brody and Molly. And I, and, and really, if you go into it cold without reading the dust jacket, you're like, who the fuck are these kids? What do they have to do with Lola? Because they were interesting characters, I got into it. So let's talk about that transition and writing that transition and, and maybe writing the prologue. I know that's a lot, but let's start no, with, with the writing. You knew you were going for the off the wall style, that Elmore Leonard kind of like, yeah. yeah, thing for the prologue, but you knew it was just for the prologue at that point, right? That was, that was the plan. Yeah, and it's kind of again, it was that sort of action movie style thing where you 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 set things up with this almost like a James Bond movie, right? You know, every James Bond movie starts with an action scene, and then uh, and then it slows down, and and you start to sort of get into the into the meat and potatoes of what the story is actually about. <clears throat> so that was kind of the vibe, you know. And the book is it's called Lower on Fire, but as as you know, having read it. Uh, it's it's not actually Lola's story. This is Brody and Molly's story. It was always intended to be Brody and Molly's story. And, um, you know, Brody is he's 24 years old. He's, a, he's this desperate guy, you know, really fallen on hard times. And he's, you know, looking after his sister the very best he can. She has cerebral palsy, but she's, you know, incredibly strong, incredibly bright. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're sort of, it's just them against the world. That's how it feels. And they don't have, um, they don't have a, an alliance. They don't have an accomplice. It's just them against the world. And Brody makes uh, a couple of serious errors and, and it, they find out that they're on the run from now from the mob. So they're literally running for their lives, which is what takes them across America. And they're trying to find out more about their past in order to find some, you know, respite and find a, a, a safe haven if they can, and eventually to find someone who can fight this battle. And that someone turns out to be Lola. Yeah, and you said uh, before we got into spoilers that there's only so many times you could write she pulled the trigger. And so it was a smart POV choice to move, to basically tell the story through Brody and Molly's eyes because as you know, we find out we're in spoilers now so we can talk about it. We find out that that Brody and Molly are Lola's kids and because of their of the story being through their point of view you don't have you can write the novel from a more realistic place because Brody is is discovering this world and Molly is discovering this world and and who their mother really is and all mm -hmm. these things so you don't have to be inside the head for the entire 400 pages of this you know kind of super killer Beatrix kiddo style character, yeah. right? Yeah. And, 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 and so I thought it was a really smart POV choice. And so you're saying it was always your goal to tell the story through their eyes, through the majority 
of it, right? Yeah, I mean, for sure, yeah. Like the novel, the idea basically came about, it was a sort of hybrid of two ideas. I'd wanted, I'd, I'd wanted to write a story about um, a female assassin or a female former mob enforcer who um, nobody knows she's female, she wears a mask. And that's and she's the best in the game, and uh, she's hired to kill. I think originally she was going to kill her own husband, or she'd been hired to kill her own husband, and that led her down a whole different path of inquiry. And then I thought, no, no, let's have a kill this this mob boss who she's done jobs for in the past. And so I I just didn't really have anything more to add. To, I couldn't find, you know, the the real the real bounce with that idea i needed something extra and probably concurrently i also had this idea about this poor kid who um you know down on his luck decides to rob a convenience store and he drops his wallet at the scene of the crime and the person who finds the wallet bribes him into doing something even worse which leads him this poor kid down a, a road of you know huge catastrophe and disaster and, and him just basically trying to get him his life back and again you know there was there was something there but I couldn't quite find the, the hook and and I ended up seeing if these two ideas would come together in some way and I found a way to make the ideas fit and you know still a little rough around the edges but you know, with a, with a little bit of love and care, I was able to smooth some of those rough spots away. So going into writing the book, um, Brody and Molly were certainly what I considered to be at the epicenter of, of the story. And, and Lola is like this background character. She's almost, you know, the, the, the sort of ghost that, that feels like she's present throughout the book but you don't, you see her right at the beginning, but you don't see her again until probably halfway through the book. And uh, really that was definitely intentional. Yeah, that was an interesting choice to kind of, you know, because for me, it was like kind of a surprise and like, oh, wait, she's a MacGuffin, <laughs> right? She's Right, yeah. And then she comes back into the story, of course, towards the end and becomes yeah. an important character again. But I, I thought... Um, yeah, it made for a really interesting structure. And, and, and you know, that is interesting. And, and I'm glad that, you know, that worked for you. And that was certainly my intention. You know, I've read a few reviews where people have actually sort of taken points off the book because we lose Lola for, you know, quite a few chapters and they want more of Lola because she's so badass. And I get that too. But, you know, all I can say in response to that is, you know, this was never really Lola's story, not entirely. This is actually Brody and Molly's story. Um, and Lola, you know, she figures heavily um, more as a, this sort of shadowy presence in the book rather than as a sort of central well, character. She, she's there the whole time because she's, the kids are in this predicament because she couldn't stay with them because she, yeah. to protect them, she had, she had to leave. And that, you know, look, we've seen all kinds of these one man, one person, army movies right and so it's interesting to see a story about the characters that are kind of um left on the outside because of the choices of this of the army of the one person army who yeah is not there for them and that makes it a very interesting story and it would only it only works because you're such a 
great writer of character and the characters are, are very strong like uh brody and and molly and even in short like renee who's only in the book for a chapter or two i believe makes a strong impression and again we got another great villain um i would actually say this is a very you know this book gets compared to a lot of things and i'm not sure everyone would see this as a compliment but no this is a compliment coming from this guy <laughs> this seems like a luke Besson movie to me i love luke Besson action movies transporter kiss of the dragon i actually i'm i'm maybe the fan of lockout the one that right. The um, I I, Guy Pierce is my favorite actor in a Luke Besson action movie. I'm totally there. Cool. But, yeah. Yeah. So to me, it's not an insult to say this is a, a Luke Besson movie as a novel. And, no, not at all. No. Yeah, because I think one of the things that Luke Besson is underrated for, and I'm not saying all of his movies have achieved this, but his best movies are the ones that are very character driven, the professional. Um, I would say even Drew Degree Fifth Element, but uh, La Femme Nikita, like, and some of the ones that he didn't direct, but he wrote, like Kiss of the Dragon, which I think is totally underrated, Jet Li movie, um, mm -hmm. Unleashed, which was another great underrated. This is a lot of Luke Besson, but my the reason I say this is because when I was reading this, I kept, and I resisted making the comparison to Luke Besson in my review because... I know not everyone feels the same way that I do about Luc Besson movies, but I am very affectionate for Luc Besson movies. So when we get the chance to talk about it, I'm going to say um, in all the best ways, this is a Luc Besson movie <laughs> in novel form, in my opinion. And one of the reasons why is you've got Jimmy Latzo, who is like a despicable, awful villain. He's just a bad guy. He's just a really yeah. bad guy. Talk about writing Jimmy Lasso and his role in this. Well, you know, as much as I wanted, you know, this movie to feel like an, an action film, I, I, uh, you know, I've always loved movies like Scarface and, uh, you know, TV shows like Sopranos, and I love those kind of mob-based movies, uh, Goodfellas and such, and I. And I wanted Jimmy to be, to feel like he, he stepped right out of like Goodfellas. I wanted him to be that, um, that wise guy, that Italian wise guy and um, very dangerous, very charismatic, used to getting things his own way. So he was this, you know, he's very much this larger than life character who, you know, basically goes crazy when he doesn't, when he doesn't get what he wants, which is Lola. Um, and ends up killing her, her boyfriend, her lover. And that's when Lola decides that she's going to exact her, her revenge, her fiery revenge. Um, but that only makes Jimmy more dangerous. So he sort of, you know, he rises from the ashes and he's sort of scarred and um, completely psychotic. Um, and, you know, as fun as Jimmy Latzo was to write and to create, and as much as he sort of hit those notes, those sort of good fellow, you know, Scarface style um, notes that I wanted to, um, he's really brought to life by Blair Mayo, who's his protege uh, and very much a replacement in Jimmy's eyes for, even though he says she isn't, but she, she is for, for Lola. You know, he intends to fight fire with fire. And it's the partnership of Blair and Jimmy 
that I think makes Jimmy's character more interesting because he actually can't fight this fight himself. He needs the ammunition to be able to take on Lola. So that says something about Jimmy, his cowardice and his fear. Um, he's hiding behind Blair Mayo, who's this fantastically able woman um, who he's basically enrolled to, to uh, once he finds Lola to take her out. Um, so Jimmy was, was, you know, he's definitely, um, he definitely ticked all the boxes for me in terms of the kind of character I wanted to create, but I found his character became even more interesting when, when his and Blair's relationship developed on the page the way it did. Sorry, I was overly muted. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Uh, so Blair, yeah, I wanted to get into this because to me, the ultimate, to me, the most important thing in storytelling, um, I come from the Shane Black school of uh, parallels and reversals, that everything is parallels and reversals. And, um, and, and so the parallels between Blair and Lola are obvious and they're ones that I talked a lot about in my review. Um, and they're and they're important, but there's also and one that occurred to me since we've been talking that I kind of wish I had written about in the review is that there's also a parallel. There's also a parallel tract that sets up a reversal with how Lola inadvertently she intentionally destroys Jimmy's life. She unintent unintentionally destroys her children's life, right? Um, which sets up the reversal of where, you know, Brody has to save her and, you know, basically, you know, she's given up, she's, she's given that moment. And so that's kind of like this ultimate reversal that happens in, in the story. And I kind of, now I, I feel like, man, I should have taken another day before I wrote that review, but <laughs> some of that comes out of our conversation, but yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I mean, was that a conscious thing? Cause I know you're a pantser. So like, and you're talking to a serious outliner. So I'm like a religious outliner. So these are the, like, I try to set up parallels and reversals in my stories all the time from beginning to end. And I don't know how you pantsers do it because I feel like you, you come onto these things and I'm, I'm in awe of your ability to do it with the seat of your pants, right? But um, was this an intentional thing to kind of reverse this, you know, to make bro to set up a situation where Brody is saving Lola at the end. No, no, it wasn't. I didn't know how the book was going to end, to be honest with you. Um, not until I got to the end and I thought there's only really one way forward here and that's for Lola to kind of sacrifice herself. But I knew that couldn't be how the book ended. So it stands to reason that, that, um, that, that Brody and Molly have to step up and fight, you know, you know, they, they, you know, they got into this war and, and they felt that Lola was their way out of it, but, you know, really they, they, they fought their own way out. Um, major spoilers in this part of the podcast, major. <laughs> I hope everybody listening has read well, the book. I, I, I try to warn people. You did, like, you did, you, you totally warned them until we're good. Yeah. We're, we're good. Um, so I kind of, I'm just imagining we're at the bar, right? We're having a few beers and you've read the book. Hey man, I like that book. Let's talk about it. So that's what we're doing. Yeah, that's the idea here. Yeah, yeah. so uh, uh, a lot of what I imagine I, is, is me in a bar, by the way, drinking beer. 
Um, well, listen, this is the way a lot of, a couple, several of my readers have told me this, that they do it. They listen to my interview and, and when I get to the point where I tell them spoiler warnings, they pause and they maybe months later come back and listen to that. That's great. Uh, that's a great way. No, it's a great way of doing it. Um, yes, yeah, so, no, it wasn't, it, it definitely wasn't intentional. It was, yeah, like I said, you know, I got to the end and I thought, okay, this is really one way I think I can end this in a way that's true to the characters and, and serves the story. And uh, yeah, yeah, just. Yeah, and you, you took through. the time to have um, Brody um, train with her. Was that something yeah. that happened in the first draft or is that something you had to go back and in, in later drafts and, and pump up? No, I knew, I, I, I mean, there has to be a big shootout at the end. So you knew that was coming, yeah. I knew that was going to be a big shootout, yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't quite know how or what. I, really, it's obvious that Blair, I, I had two images in my head. I had, had um, I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I had Brody going up against Jimmy because Jimmy killed his dad. And, and that seemed natural. And of course, you have this, you know, this, you know, barbarian, battle you know these two warriors between you know you know Blair on one side and Lola on the other Blair's young and capable Lola's you know former total badass but she's a bit older and she's not quite the force of nature she used to be and that it's too compelling a fight not to, not to you know see that it was always going to happen right so those I just knew that those two things were going to happen I didn't know how I was was going to get there um, but you know, like I said, it all came and we got that reversal and that worked out, that worked out great. But, um, yeah, so, so yeah, I had to have, um, Lola give Brody the ins and outs of, of firearm, um, know-how just so that like when he's, you know, shooting bad guys at the end, it doesn't seem wild. I mean, it's a completely, it's a wildly over the top ending anyway. And I, I make no apology for that. This is this is Kill Bill at the end and it's John Wick and, and I don't care. I wanted it to be crazy. I wanted it to be fun. And anybody who says it's too over the top, honestly, they can go fuck themselves because I do not care. I wanted it that way. This is the book I wanted to write. Exactly. Sorry if your kids are in the background. <laughs> no, 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 no children here. Um, so that's that's just what I, that, that was what I set out to do. So it was, be over the top but at the same time i couldn't have you know brody commander rolling and coming up shooting at least without first having a few lessons well what was cool for me on that was is that in the beginning like in the prologue lola's like la femme nikita right and then in in 25 years past now she's mom now she's sarah connor kind right. of right yeah right uh training and and so it's like all these great uh action uh women icons like um, yeah with the parallels with them and i i love that you know because um you know okay so there's uh, uh one of my favorite science fiction writers is rudy rucker right and um uh rudy rucker uh in his book about writing he talked about how science writing science fiction is a lot of playing power chords um, and how you have to hit certain notes when you when you're playing a power chord. And what was cool about this novel is, is that you're playing '80s action, like over the top. And by '80s, I mean '80s action movies. Yeah, yeah. And you know you're hitting. You have to hit those notes. And so when 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 you have moments where 
the characters are doing perfectly these things that that fit that that the cliches there's no there's no reason to apologize you're doing it that's i want to be reminded of sarah connor I <laughs> exactly want, i want to be reminded of la femme Nikita and all these things i want that when i'm reading a book like this and maybe i'm a perfect reader because i'm a person that has read your work because i'm a horror reader too but i'm also an 80s action movie junkie so like it this book was like like perfect to be injected into my brain yeah that's great and you know it's it's received a lot of really positive feedback and i think a lot of a lot of people you know of all age groups male and female um all genders are really digging this book uh, maybe in this maybe because it does remind them of those of those action movies from the 80s or whatever and yeah you know i love make the the sarah Connor comparison because um, you know they all of these these cultural references you know that the Lola's being compared to and there's a lot of them from um, Killing Eve to Long Kiss Goodnight and uh, John Wick and uh, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and you know there's there's been a lot of them and and I didn't set out to imitate any of those things necessarily um, I wanted to do my yeah. sorry again. Not directly. They're, they're influences. They're in your exactly mind. Exactly. They're there. They're sort of just boiling away in the background, and 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 they uh, they're you know, it's inspired by some of those fantastic uh, one person army characters, and um, yeah, and I love when those comparisons are made because uh, you know, and it's like uh, you know when Westlake Soul came out and. And everybody was well, not everybody, but quite a few people had compared it to Johnny Got His Gun by Dalton Trombo, and and I'd never read that book, and um, <laughs> right, right, and and I was like, oh really? And then I read the synopsis for it, and I was like, holy crap, <laughs> you know, that's that's crazy. And I've never seen a long, I still haven't seen a long kiss goodnight, but quite a few people have made the comparison to that. So what? Um, You've never seen Long Kiss Goodnight? No, I've never what? seen it. You know what you should do? I'm, I'm going to recommend this is read the screenplay first. Oh, okay. Because the screen, the movie is good. The Shane Black screenplay is amazing. Is that online? Could I find that online? Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. Um, if I come to think of it, I'll try to send you a link for it. Because uh, Simply Scripts Online, they have a lot of like published scripts that I just read, for example, Unforgiven on there because everyone everyone kept telling me the script for Unforgiven is just amazing. Is it? Yeah, it is. I, yeah, I've just been reading it. And um, a screenwriting partner of mine said, told, told me to read Unforgiven because it's his favorite. And, uh, and it's incredible. But the, the, the Shane Black screenplays for Lethal Weapon and Long Kiss Goodnight are just, uh, oh, and Last Boy Scout. They're all so much better than the finished movies. <laughs> right. Oh, cool. I'll definitely do that. Yeah. When you see Kiss, uh, Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang, you know, then you go, oh, man, I really wish he had directed all those scripts that he wrote. Right, right. But um, yeah, I'm, so, I'm amazed you've never seen Long Kiss Goodnight. That, that, it is a great movie, but do, do read the screenplay first. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, well, just to wrap things up a little bit on the writing thing and to, 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 to really bring this home is um, one of the things I noticed in the acknowledgements was that you had some pretty high power beta readers 
on this. And um, I like, I think most of us choose our beta readers because we want somebody who has a high powered imagination to, to look at these things and tell us, you know, like, what are you seeing? What are you not seeing? In this case, you had Tim LeBond, Christopher Golden. Tim LeBond wrote The Silence, which is what the year it came out was my read of the year, just knocked my socks off. Uh, Chris Golden, amazing writer on many levels. And then, and Joe Hill, like that, that's pretty high powered help there. Um, I'm wondering like, what were the major differences between the drafts that you handed them? And, and what was the, you know, because none of us do this alone. We all have friends that help yeah. us that, that look at these things and, you know, and almost every book by every author, they have some, a friend or somebody that said to them, like they called bullshit on one part or said, I love this part. Can you do more of this? Like that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Your beta readers help on this one. Cause you made well, a point of, of pointing them out. So I imagine they did something. <laughs> oh, for sure. They're, they're in I mean, you, you know, you know, this as a writer, you spend, you know, two years in a novel and, um, from start to finish and you, you just have no idea at the end of it if what you've got works on any level you know, and you're almost sick of it at that point and you just want to you want to get a read on it and you need distance in order to do you know one way to achieve that distance is to put it down pick it up again in you know three to six months and another way is to get somebody to, to, to read it for you. And, and beta readers are an important part of the process. The first person to read the book was Chris Ryle from San Diego, from the great city of San Diego. Um, ID, uh, IDW, right? Yeah, formerly of IDW, yeah. And I've known Chris for a few years now. And um, amazing guy, very creative. He's, he was an editor at IDW, he's big in comics and he knows what makes a story work. And uh, he's been a fan of mine since Westlake Soul and a friend of mine since then as well. And um, he's just one of my go-to guys because um, he, he just, I know he'll be honest with me. And that's the same with Tim Levin, not Tim Lebon, it's Levin, <laughs> if you ever meet him, <laughs> Tim Levin and Chris sorry. Golden, who, no, don't be sorry to me, <laughs> he wouldn't mind. Uh, it's not like Simon LeBon, it's Tim Levin. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I know better, but I, it's I, cool. It's cool. I won't tell him and he won't be listening. Well, he might be. <laughs> hey, Tim, if you're listening, Tim and Chris are two of my very best friends in the world. Tim, during COVID, we talk every couple of weeks on, on Skype and he's become my brother. He's like my COVID brother. You know, we, we, we're the best of pals and um anyway yeah those two guys so at that point i got the book to to the point where i felt comfortable that it could be read and uh and they each each one of them offered invaluable feedback um i can't specifically remember who said what um but they all had valid points and i went back and made the changes chris ryle was was a big fan of the book he loved the book um and uh and i don't know how I, I've been friends with Joe Hill for a while, but Joe emailed me. I wasn't going to ask Joe Hill to read the book because he'd done, he's done so much for me in the past. And then it was, I just didn't want to like bug, you know, he, he did, he helped me out with the right. Forgotten Girl and stuff like that. And he helped me find my for the Forgotten Girl. Um, and uh, 
you know, just been a real, a real champion in my corner. And I just didn't want to like bug him, but he came to me and said, Hey, I'd really like to read the new book. And I was like, sure, it's pretty much done. I've got to, you know, we've got to, we've got to sell it and then there'll be further edits, but here it is. And I kind of forgot about it. And he came back with a blurb. Um, and they also came back with notes, which I didn't ask for, but I was very happy to receive. And it was like a, a page of really great suggestions. You know, at that point, the book had already gone off to my agent, and my agent had since had submitted it to a, to a number of, of editors. Um, and, and I thought to myself, well, if the book sells, then I'm going to implement as many of Joe's changes as, as I can, and that the editor, whoever buys it, agrees with. Um, so there were, there were a few sort of minor cosmetic changes, and then, um, and then an editor did buy, obviously, Jen Brell, William Morrow, who happens to be Joe Hill's agent anyway. And I said, I said to Jen, listen, these are some of the things that Joe suggested. What do you think? And, and she agreed that they were good changes. And she, Jen, had a host of things to, to add. <laughs> she could imagine any, any high power editor would. And every single one of her suggestions made the book so much better. I would say that th through the beta reading, the book didn't change that much, but by the time it had gone through all of its editorial changes and with Joe Hill's input as well, there's quite a few notable differences in, in the structure. The, um, you know, the, there's a few interstitial chapters in the book where Lola makes a reappearance in the second third. And, um, and those were originally like uh, in the second half of the book, when we catch up with Lola again, she she flashes back and she remembers those in one long sequence. Mm. But because um, we thought it might be nice to sort of reintroduce Lola a bit early, we we took those segments and we we used them as interstitial scenes throughout that sort of second third, while Brody and Molly are, are traveling across the states, and then everything comes together. And when he turns up at Lola's house we know what Lola's been doing at that point. Well, it's good because it connects us to the character and keeps us. It, it was, yeah, that was Joe's suggestion. Um, and it was, it was a good, a good one. As soon as, as soon as I saw that, I thought, yeah, shit, that's good. Why didn't I think of that? You know, but you don't always think of everything, right? That's why, that's why you have beta readers and that's why you have friends and that's why you have editors. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what they're there to, to help you with. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so Rio, any last things on, on, on any big challenges or things that you weren't expecting when you started this book um, to close out our discussion of the writing of it? Well, I mean, you know, other than the challenge of writing a novel, you know, I put, I, you know, I put heart and soul into everything I do and, and I'm, not, I'm not a guy who can, you know, just write anything and move on. It, it has to be as right as, as I can make it before I move on to the next sentence, next paragraph, next page. So I'm, I'm quite slow, I'm quite deliberate and, and it ends up being a, a sort of fairly arduous process. It does really feel like a, a bit of a, a, a journey by the time I get to the end. Um, but, you know, there were certain things in the book, a lot of the gun, the gun stuff, um, I, I, you know, I, we don't have guns up here. Actually, we do have guns up here. What we don't have is gun crime. But uh, we, uh, I don't know too much about guns. And so that, that involved 
a great deal of research, not David Morrell styles research where he goes down to, you know, firing ranges and signs up for the army and then learns to fly a plane. I didn't do any of that stuff, but I, I did go to YouTube. <laughs> I took a class from David Morrell once um, you did, yeah. at, at one of the Stoker weekends and um, he, I, I'm a huge David Morrell fan, but yeah, he's great. happy because I know, <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, I think Testament was the one where he went to like survival school. And <laughs> yeah, he gets, yeah, I didn't do any of that, but I did, I did a lot of research. I, you know, I read uh, several books and pamphlets and, you know, you're obviously online and, you know, yeah. the Smith and the Western homepage and looking at all of the different calibers and, and then, you know, you various YouTube videos and instructional videos peppered across the internet. And, uh, well, you know, I've, my own, uh, I was in the army cadets for a little while. And I remember, you know, little things like the recall of a 45 and stuff like that, that, you know, that years yeah. later actually sort of come into play. <laughs> I'm sure Keen will give us a, a, a gun review at some point. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. uh, <laughs> Like, yeah, I, I, well, you know, it's funny. I, like, I, I, I grew up in Indiana, so I have shotguns. I have done a little bit of that. Nothing, nothing came out too obvious for me. So, uh, your Canadian gun writing is, is, it appears to be. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. No, I, I check everything at least three or four times and multiple sources. I don't just get, you know, one gun guy on YouTube. It's, it's got to, it's got to come from several sources before I commit to, uh, um you know putting it onto paper myself so and you know and then you can you can kind of tie it together with a little bit of creative license as well you still got to have fun and you can't you know it can't sound researched and it can't sound overdone that was actually one of the things that chris golden pointed out um when he read it through he said he said you could probably tone down on some of the gun porn and uh and I was like, really? I like the gun porn. It's kind of digging, I, you know, and then I read it back and I thought, you know, yeah, this, some of this does sound a bit in love with itself and a bit overly researched. So, uh, you know, I was able to go through and tone it down a, a notch or two. I cannot confirm nor deny that I have gotten the same note from an editor before. Oh, cool. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> funny. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I have. Well, okay, the neighbors practicing a saxophone, so that may be a sign that we should uh, um, uh, start to wrap things up. But uh, I just, I love this book. I thought it was great. Thank you, man. Thank I, you so much. I, uh, I, I can't say enough about it. If people, um, I, I, you're, you're on Twitter and all that, it'll be in the show notes. Uh, but is there anything um, you want to leave people with, with talking about the writing of this book? Um, I think we've covered pretty much everything, you know, just, you know, hopefully people go out and read it and enjoy it. And like yourself, leave a review wherever you leave reviews, spread the word. And uh, hopefully I'll be back to write another book very soon. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll be interested in talking to you at that time too, because sure. uh, I loved everything that, I, that I've read so far. So um, Rio, I really appreciate the time. Um, uh, this book was fantastic, um, and I mean it, it with all all my heart. Luke Besson movie. That's a compliment <laughs> coming from me. That's uh, great. I, I, I'll take it. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> all right, so uh, listeners, definitely check out. Uh, or well, if you got this far, you you've read Lola on Fire, or 
you're you're doing life wrong. Um, but uh, I appreciate the time, everybody, and um, we'll try to track Rio down on his next book. So thanks for joining me. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks so much.